Hello, this is Jay Siraj, uh, the operations lead for the Michigan Ross Executive Education in the Middle East and Africa, and the host of the Michigan Ross Executive Perspectives Middle East podcast series. In the second session of our podcast, we continue our chat with the faculty members here at Michigan Ross about the pandemic and how organizations have risen to the challenge. With us today are M.S. Krishnan, Professor of Technology and Operations and Associate Dean of Executive Programs, Melanie Burnett, Chief Executive Education Officer, Maxim Sitch, Associate Professor of Organizations, and Cindy Chipani, Professor of Business Administration at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. We can kick it off by a quick introduction. I will start with Maxim. Hi, Jay, and thanks for having me. I'm a faculty member in the Management Organizations Group at Michigan Ross. I study how executives get things done, execute without relying on formal authority. So by leveraging networks of relationships within and across organizational boundaries and by using influence and persuasion. Excellent. Cindy? I'm Cindy Schipani, a professor of business law at the Ross School. A major focus of my work lately has been research on pathways for women to exceed in uh, positions of leadership and looking at various changes of, in the law and recommendations for business on the, these issues. Oh, great to have you. Krishnan. You. Hey, hello, everybody. This is, my name is MS Krishnan. I'm um, a faculty member in the Technology and Operations Group here at the Ross Business School. And my area of research in the intersection of technology and business, I study how a digital technology is fundamentally transforming the structure of business models across industries and also every function in, in businesses. And also I focus on what are the key capabilities that companies need to build in order to thrive and succeed in this digitally enabled disruption. Uh, last but not least, Melanie. Thank you, Jay. I'm Melanie Weaver Barnett. I'm the Chief Executive Education Officer at Michigan's Ross School of Business. And my work, or perhaps better stated, our work, because we have a very diverse team of people engaged here in doing this work, is all about creating and delivering executive learning experiences that really make a difference. And we know a great deal about that already because we've been in this business for a long time. But as you can imagine, shifting from a combination of virtual and face-to-face -face learning experiences to completely online virtual has been a challenge and a big focus of my work over the past seven or eight or nine months. Great. I really look forward to hearing from you then how we made this successful transition in this very complex environment. Let us get started. At the beginning of the year of 2020, we were talking more about a speculation of what COVID, uh, the impact of COVID would be on the industries, on business, on education, on the economy. It was all speculation, but we are now a year into it. And what we have seen is a divergence of performance at the, the, at the business side. So we have seen more like a K-shaped recovery where there are plenty of success stories that have adapted and uh, did well in the pandemic environment. While we have seen mainly SMEs struggle to keep up with the, new, with the new normal that's happening. So I just wanted to get your thoughts in terms of what do you think enabled these companies to succeed and how did they manage to adapt? And I think we're gonna benefit a lot from your different perspectives in terms of organization management, business law and technology and education. So all of these perspectives will give us a big picture into how 
those that have succeeded did it and those that are struggling to keep up in terms of uh, sustaining their market presence will manage under circumstances uh, to do well. So let me start then with Maxim. What do you think from your field of expertise and from your perspective, how did that impact it in a positive way at an organization level? Yeah, so thanks, Jay. Rather than talking about this in the abstract, um, I wanted to give you an example of a company that I felt has done incredibly well through this pandemic and explain from my perspective, what were the key keys to success for this particular organization? And I want to talk about Amazon. I'm a big fan of this company in general, and of course, they've done exceptionally well during the pandemic. Now, some might argue that the pandemic presented them with a set of very auspicious business opportunities, particularly in the side of online retail. And I think that's fair to some extent. But I really want to emphasize how well they identified and took advantage of these opportunities. So first of all, they continued their absolutely unprecedented growth in one year, nearly doubling their global headcount to a million and a quarter employees. Just think about this. In the midst of the ravaging pandemic, they were creating about 1,400 jobs every day. So in the span of last year, they've created the equivalent of five Googles and 10 Facebooks. And to be able to scale so rapidly amidst global production and distribution crisis is remarkable. Second, they run, and Krishnan can speak to this too, is they run one of the most complex logistics operations in the world. They ship about 400 million packages per month. About two thirds of these packages, they ship with their internal capabilities. Again, to maintain on-time delivery amidst you know, an unprecedented pandemic with the addition of so many new employees is a remarkable accomplishment. They continue to hire great talent. They're the top employer of our MBA students at Michigan Ross and a company that attracts smart, capable, incredibly ambitious applicants. People want to work for the firm. So I kept thinking as to and kept asking myself, so what explains this success? And I attribute large credit to their very entrepreneurial and fast-moving culture, which is incredibly difficult to find in companies of their size. So for those of you who know Amazon, you probably know that Amazon is built on a set of leadership principles, which were developed to a large extent by Jeff Bezos himself. Jeff is the founder and CEO of Amazon. And many companies have these leadership principles or cultural principles, but they're typically stored somewhere in dusty drawers and the head of HR pulls them out once a year to talk about culture. That's not the case at Amazon. So I was fortunate to work with a company and see their principles from the inside. They select and hire people based on these principles. They reward and promote people based on these leadership principles. They speak, speak using these leadership principles in meetings. So essentially those principles shape the language they use in communicating with one another. And quite a few of these principles such as bias for action, think big, customer obsession, encourage employees to just seize those opportunities when they see them, All right? So this is the culture where you do something and then ask for forgiveness as opposed to asking for permission. And if you read Bezos's letters to shareholders, he always signs it with, it remains day one. And I find it tremendously impactful because that's the reference to the founding day of the company because day two from his perspective is slow death and decline. And so I really admire the success that Amazon has had recently in particular last year but I would also would be remiss if I didn't mention that 
I believe that they attain these fantastic results in the right way too. They invested nearly $4 billion in personal protection equipment, cleaning, creating safe spaces for their workers. They incentivized their frontline workers and supported those who were in need of extra financial assistance. That, create, that, that creates the stickiness with your labor. People are excited to work for you, willing to work for you. You want to be affiliated with a the brand. They funded COVID development efforts and actively contributed to the delivery of COVID tests to healthcare personnel. And I expect them to be a major player in the future vaccine distribution efforts too. So again, to me, Amazon exemplifies some of the key things that I believe drive companies forward in this environment, which is this culture of fast-paced change and adaptability. People taking risks, experimenting, and then asking for forgiveness if those experiments fail, as opposed to endlessly asking for permission through red tape. And ultimately, again, sustaining these morals and values that allow you to conduct business in the right way. That's a great starting point. The slogan of it's always day one, actually, it's an indication that no matter what kind of circumstance, no matter what kind of environment you're in, if there is a change from day two to day one, you're always in the same position of trying to get your way through that day. So that's a great entry point. And, and actually, it's a good segue to Krishna because Amazon is a supply chain and logistics company, but it is a technology company before it's even more of a technology company that it is a supply chain company. So from your view, how did this technology company, what did they do to make it so well in this kind of pandemic? And how do you feel the impact was on the industry of supply chain overall? Thanks, Jay. I was smiling in a sense because since the day one letter was written almost five years back, I've been using it in my executive education teaching because it's fascinating about the culture of the company. It is a technology company. It is a tech culture inside. You can see that. But a couple of things that you see the day day one concept that he talks about, he calls how processes inside large companies become proxies for inaction or proxies for lack of innovation. Because the fact that processes are, you know, imbibed and kind of taken as granted, that's how we do business. And what what the pandemic did was it basically cut through all the processes, whatever you define, how you work, what you do, it basically threw all those assumptions out of the window in one day. And that's why I think it gave them the opportunity. I mean, they they were kind of geared for this because they always questioned that not to... Be always be careful that your processes don't become the proxies for lack of the agility inside the organization. So that's why they could actually respond back. Now, coming back to your question about supply chains, I think the pandemic really fundamentally took all the covers off, right? And the supply chains in terms of how they were being managed because uh, the concept of risk management and supply chain has been redefined with the pandemic. There is, uh, if you say, for example, if you take the uh, the meat processing industry, how we got to know that there are a couple of places, a couple of meat plants, if they if they get affected, I mean, it's almost the entire country can get blocked from getting the supplies on time. So I think it is it has made the made the all the organizations realize the need for both resilience and flexibility, like you know, in, in, the, in the supply chain and also the risks that are embedded. And companies are now completely rethinking this to, to improve transparency in supply chain through, through technology, because um, I think technology, the, the application of technology is, I would say the pandemic cannot, I can't think of any other bigger catalyst, more effective catalyst for the significance of technology, not just for 
success of the business, even now for survival of the business first, okay? And then building capabilities to compete. So I think to uh, sum up your, the answer to your question, uh, asked, thrown so many new questions about supply chain, exposed uh, risks that were embedded and the companies are actually recovering. Some companies had really kind of, they had bad experience. They could not recover from it. I mean, the meat processing example I gave, I gave you. But on the other hand, Maxim was talking about how Amazon and other companies completely reconfigured the resources, right? And then identified what is it that they need new. And because, the, because of the flexibility and the agility they had inside the organization, they could actually move fast and then adapt to the changes. There are also other companies which have actually thought about innovative ideas with technology, right? In order to kind of, because the supply chain is completely end-to-end, right? And the way you see a supply chain is right from the customer to the raw materials at the other end, right? If you look at, in the auto industry, companies like Mercedes-Benz, when they saw that there is nobody walking into the dealership, there's no concert of dealership with the pandemic, there's nobody's going to be walking into the dealers, then how do you kind of still keep uh, sales going, right? I mean, that's when they launched this virtual car buying application on their tablet so that you can, the dealer person also has a role to play. He or she will actually sit with you in a, in a meeting like this, and then you can virtually experience the vehicle and then make decisions. So it's that's another an example of, uh, you know, how can you quickly think about technology solutions in order to bring that transparency in the supply chain, transparency in terms of both information and also, but in terms of other information related to supply chain. Actually, this is fairly good in terms of setting the spotlight on supply chain being one of the industries, major industries impacted in a positive way by the pandemic as it's reinvented. So maybe we should dedicate one of the podcast episodes dedicated to uh, supply chain for this purpose. But you did mention agility, flexibility, culture, organization. So all of these are going to be essential for a growing company. So Melanie, I think from that perspective, especially in that transition from physical classes to a complex virtual online synchronous and asynchronous environment, how do you ensure that these growing companies can get their organizational employees and and leaders and future leaders trained uh, to make sure that they have sustainability in their growth? I want to go back to something Maxim said. He mentioned principles. And I think that the companies that have been most successful in this are the ones who recognize that there are principles that are going to apply no matter what. You have to do a situational analysis and figure out what's the same and what's different now in this current environment. You have to determine what kinds of mindsets as well as capabilities, not just what skills, but what mindsets and capabilities are gonna be necessary for success and then create a plan. So in the specific realm of executive learning experiences, for example, some of those principles that are going to apply no matter what, um, no matter how you're doing the learning, are that the learning experience has to be closely aligned with the company's strategic priorities and the individual's strategic priorities. It has to be evidence-based, based on sound theory, not just someone's idea of what worked for them in a certain situation in a certain point in time. It has to engage the participants, the leaders and the managers in applying what they learn and stepping back then and reflecting on that application and learning from that reflection and a, a spiral of continuous improvement. It has to create a learning community so that there's a vibrancy in the experience and people are learning not just between faculty and participants, but among the participants and the learners as well. So all of those principles and more are going to apply no matter what. 
And then you have to think about what's different. Well, one of the things that was clearly different was, was very obvious. We are not going to be sitting in classrooms together. We are going to be doing this all from a virtual, um, in a virtual environment. And so obviously then that leads to a set of mindsets and capabilities that need to be developed. Mindsets like, you know, we're gonna have to be ready to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because we are not going to know all the answers and we're not gonna be excellent at this quite yet. And the clients and the uh, providers together need to, need to acknowledge that. Mindsets like we are going to be building this bridge as we walk on it, we all need to be okay with that. How are we gonna handle mistakes? We're gonna make mistakes and we're going to handle them with grace and we're gonna give each other grace as we experience mistakes. So those were some of the things that I think we incorporated into our work. And then as far as activities and plans for getting things done, like what are you actually gonna do? We and our clients together recognize that it may be a different set of partners. It's a different learning design. It's a different, different kinds of preparation and follow-up. So I can give you a real example also of how this played out. We have a longtime client in the Tata group and specifically Tata Management Training Center. And we've had this longtime program with them. In fact, our February offering of it, our February cohort group will be our 40th cohort group in this program. And we do just two to three cohorts a year. So you can imagine this has been going on for quite a while. And so all of a sudden, everything had to change with this program. Or another option was to cancel it, sort of park and protect it. But I think this was one of the principles that Tata lived by, right? Is that keeping people continuously learning and growing is a principle they believed in. So we're not gonna set aside and try to wait it out till this pandemic ends. We are going to figure out a way to deliver a compelling and meaningful learning experience. So we worked together with a platform provider and learning designers and so on and created from a 10-day intense face-to-face program, instead a multi-week program that had significant asynchronous elements and synchronous live time with faculty, as well as follow-up and was very carefully crafted to incorporate all those learning principles that we know are so critical to a program experience. So we did what had been talked about for quite some time. You hear people say this term flipping the classroom. To some extent, that's what we did, right? So in the case, for example, of a topic on strategic decision-making with financial acumen and, and data analytics, there were a series of videos that the faculty created and the participants consumed. But we didn't just have them watch videos. We had them watch videos. We had them reflect on how this applies to you. We had them do a quiz. And so they were very much prepared for the face-to-face. It was live virtual learning sessions. They had set their goals. They knew what they wanted to achieve and how this kind of, this topic was going to relate to their actual work. Then when the the live sessions happened, they were very prepared with all the terminology, you know, they were familiar with cash flow, capital management, asset utilization, and topics like that. They were grounded in the overall overarching kind of theme of understanding what is the linkage among your decisions as a manager the financial statements of the company and the company's stock price. What is the relationship between those? And how are you going to use this learning experience and all these concepts 
to effect that in the ways that are aligned with the company's priorities around that linkage. And then of course we had a series of follow-up activities as well that help continue and enhance the learning. Well, I think it's amazing how you know, honestly humanity can find all these opportunities in the middle of tragedies and still adapt and make something out of it. So I'm proud that we have Michigan Ross being part of that foundation that's setting it up for the future. So Cindy, I think, and now that you've heard all the different perspectives, what is your view on the success stories uh, around that happened during the pandemic? Thanks, Jay. One of the particular important success stories, I think, revolved around Verizon. They were listed in Forbes as being uh, the top corporate responder to the crisis. And the kinds of things they did, I thought, were very important. Um, The CEO set up a very specific hierarchy of the constituencies that they were going to really worry about. And he set up that the employees were first, the customers were second, that society was third, and last and least, the shareholders. So that's flipping it around a bit. And of course, I think if you're dealing with the other constituencies, you are going to be helping out the shareholders but the focus really was on a bigger picture. So with respect to the employees, they didn't lay anybody off. They actually paid more money for those out in the field. They increased the compensation. If it turns out that you had the virus, they went ahead and paid you you more sick time, essentially. Those whose normal jobs were disrupted They found other things for them to do, including things like volunteer work so that they deployed them in other ways. So I think that was pretty incredible. Uh, Customers, they pledged not to cut off services if you couldn't pay. Well, of course, they believe that if you cut somebody off, they're not coming back. I mean, there's a practical angle to that, but still that they had that in their second line of, um, of thinking about what was important. And then with society, they made uh, $54 million in donations to nonprofits. They did things like giving um, high school students in New York free subscriptions to the New York Times. So they were caring about issues in society at large. So, of course, I think big company like Verizon, they have a bandwidth to do these kinds of things that, of course, smaller, medium-sized companies really couldn't do. And I, I truly believe they believe it uh, would be important to the bottom line as well. But I still found it very refreshing to see the focus on employees, to see the focus on customers, and to be worrying about society at large. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great story. So uh, since I have you with me now, then uh, let me ask you, if we have been talking about the new normal for the past 12 months or more, so if we were to put the crystal ball in front of you and ask you to define what is the new normal, what would it be like for you, given all the examples you have experienced? Yeah, I think what what the crisis has shown is, is really a willingness of business to tackle society's problems instead of just looking inward and trying to fix the externalities that they cause. This crisis seems different to me than things like the 2008 financial crisis, where I think companies were looking more inward. Here, I think with this being a major public health crisis, they've been forced out to look outside the boundaries of their own firm for meaningful solutions. 
So there's, there was a quote that I liked from uh, Roger Martella of the American Bar Association. And he talks about how the COVID crisis has reminded us of the foundational role of business in maintaining the quality of life for diverse populations and communities. And I think the societal benefit of returning to business as normal will be felt more immediately by stakeholders and provide them with hopefully a greater appreciation for what business provides to society at large. I think in helping to address a major public health problem infecting the entire globe, that uh, they Corporations have signaled a willingness to improve society and serve more of their stakeholders. In this region, I believe Saudi Telecom's implementation of a, an employee-first culture, of its total commitment to a work culture and a climate of positivity, I think it will continue to prove successful post-pandemic. Its ability to attract female talent has been particularly impressive. So, of course, I think assisting customers and employees in society can benefit the bottom line, but I think the benefits will be larger than we might anticipate in the long run. Excellent. So then from a societal evolution of the pandemic, I think if we take a look now at the future of technology, when you look at that future, the stock market is telling us where it's going. I and mean, we've seen companies like Square and Snowflake, all these are advanced technology solutions quadruple in value, they are making huge success uh, in the marketplace. So Krishnan, I think from that perspective, what do you see the future of that technology and what are the main ones and how do you see its impact triggered or accelerated in the uh, next 12 months within the pandemic environment? I think I'd like to build on what uh, Cindy just ended. I think I agree with Cindy. This crisis is fundamentally different from what we saw the financial crisis of 2008, because that was a typical well-known capital financial market induced crisis and economic crisis. We all know that. I think, in my opinion, this crisis is different in many ways. If you, the, my, in my own way, I, the way I look at this crisis, we all understand normal distribution. And the world around is normally distributed, whether in terms of a distribution of wealth, whether it is distribution of intellectual capabilities. You know, if you can across a classroom or an organization, you'll see that there are people who are kind of more intellectually capable than not. So that is a normally distributed curve. And there is also normally distributed curve in terms of the employment level, type of employment we are engaged with. And you can define the spectrum there. But what this crisis has done, this pandemic has done is, the way I look at it, it is kind of straight, directly drawn a wedge into this normal distribution, pushing the two tails further apart. And in another, in other ways, what this has done is it has actually increased the distance between the haves and have-nots. We have to kind of understand and appreciate that. I think it's a responsibility of all leaders, you know, all managers to see what's going on here. People like like all of us, right, in this room. I mean, we are fine. We are able to. We are still doing our job. And technology has helped us to do this. You know, in some ways, I will even argue more comfortably within our own home with a lot of flexibility. Whereas for other people in different kinds of jobs, it requires direct contact. They don't even have jobs or in sometimes they have to struggle. And this uh, pandemic with disruption to the education market has, uh, has affected students who are more focused, who are kind of have a lot of motivation, who can uh, do things on their own, which is on the right time side of the spectrum. Uh, as you know, it's increased more opportunities for them. Whereas other students were struggling and focus issues, it is actually more difficult for them. 
Similarly, the effect on gender, right? I mean, in terms of in work life, uh, the work life balance between between male and female, I think it's different. I, mean, I think female uh, employees, it's been more harder on them. The point I'm trying to make is, it is important as we recover from this crisis. I don't think we're going to hit a new normal. I mean, kind of normal quickly in in few months' time that when there's a vaccine. I think we will see the effect of this lingering for some time. And I think organizations need to come together. Leadership has to be more empathetic to in order to how do you kind of address this within organization. Now, coming back to technology, you, you commented about the technology, some of the tech companies, stocks, and you mentioned how they're flying. Because I believe, I think, as I said, this has been a, one of the greatest catalysts in terms of significance of how technology is going to be a, one, of the, one of the most primary enablers of solutions. I'm not going to say that technology is the solution, but technology is going to be an enabler of solution, opens up so many opportunities for us to solve the problems that come out of this pandemic. And that's exactly what you're seeing reflected. I'm not arguing, I'm not going to argue that the valuations are fair, but the reason that you're seeing this is because um, you have now the capability with cloud platforms taking off and then which is basically enabling democratization of access to technology capabilities. What I mean by that is the technology capability that was only available to uh, the Verizons or the Amazons or the Mercedes-Benz five years, 10 years back with uh, cloud platforms or some of the companies that you mentioned, it can be made accessible to small and medium companies as well. So this is a disruption and you will see this, what they call as technology enabling companies and they would have a lot of work and a lot of opportunities in solving problems. That's exactly what is reflected in some of those market valuations. I think then, uh, based on what you said and your insight, this would form a really good foundation then for these SMEs to use that as one of the elements to help them uh, drive further growth and uh, get out of the stalemate situation that they have been in over the past 12 months. Absolutely. And, so, and- uh, it is an opportunity, but I, again, I mean, we have to recognize that, as, as uh, Cindy mentioned, the haves and have-nots in the broader in, or in a spectrum of industry, the normal distribution, the bigger companies are on this on this side, the SMEs are on the left-hand side. They've been kind of separated more. And here is an opportunity. Technology can be, a, there's an old saying that next to taxes and debt, technology can be an equalizer. Yeah, and, and cash as well, because companies like Apple that have $300 billion in cash, they can afford to do what, whatever strategies or initiatives that are needed to drive the company forward. Whereas small companies that are cash strapped, it's difficult and they need to rely more on their organic internal leadership and agility and flexibility. And technology, if it comes cheap as an enabler, that would be a major pillar in terms of moving them at least to go from the one side of the bell curve, at least to the middle side of the bell curve. And that's what those couple of those companies you mentioned, they actually enable you to you know, bring the technology at a much lower price. That's what the cloud platform does. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in this case, then uh, I would like to go back to you, Melanie, in terms of what you see as well in, in, in our future within this environment of the COVID-19. As everyone has mentioned, we are learning a lot in this process and hearkening back to something Cindy said, Professor Sukhani said earlier in the podcast, yes, we have to be incredibly customer focused and meet and exceed our customers' needs. Yes, we have to worry about stock price and do what we can to affect it. And none of that's going to happen in the right way unless employees are really engaged. If employees are full of anxiety about losing their job, it's not going to work. If they are disengaged and they feel unappreciated, 
it's not going to work. And so companies have to provide ways to ensure that employees feel as secure as possible. You can't lie. You have to be honest about what you know and what you don't know. But employees need to feel secure. They need to have opportunities to contribute. These are those principles. Again, they need to be recognized and appreciated. They need to have work that has meaning and they need to be given opportunities to learn and grow. So throughout this whole process, though, we're learning how do we do that when we're not only uh, learning in a virtual environment, we're managing in a virtual environment, we're doing our work in a virtual environment. So we are gaining great skills in how to communicate, how to manage a team when it's all virtual, how do we do talent management, how do we develop talent, and in our case, developing talent is one specific focus. Where I think we'll be in the longer term, once the pandemic is over and we're back to what we we may refer to as normal, but we all know it'll be a new kind of normal, is that we are going to be so good at understanding and delivering the kinds of employee development experiences, leadership development experiences that work best in a virtual environment and what works best and must be done in a face-to-face environment. And we will be crafting much more productive and effective development experiences than we ever have before because of what we've learned during this time. If I look at our participants' comments as they've gone through these completely virtual experiences, and they've also had the live face-to-face co-located kinds of experiences, they're saying things like, you know, this was fantastic. I can't believe how good this was. I learned so much in a way that I never expected to. And they're also saying, I really miss the face-to-face connection. I didn't quite feel the level of learning community that I do when it's face-to-face. So I think it's likely true that we are never going to go to an all virtual environment, but we are going to get very good at that environment and doing all these things and creating learning communities. And we are going to know and deliver in a face-to-face format only those things that where that really makes a difference in the learning outcomes. I mean, at the end, we're going to end up being in a hybrid model. We went from one side, which was everything was face-to-face engaging. We would go on a flight whenever somebody wanted to talk for five minutes uh, in a business meeting. Now, all decisions, even sales and business development happens online. It, it will end up converging to somewhere in the middle, but that's going to have a, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, yes, exactly. You think about the example I gave earlier with Tata, the Tata group, Tata Management Training Center program. And Krishnan's very familiar with this program. People did some pre-work. They came to us for 10 solid days and we, or we sent faculty to them for 10 solid days, right? So you're sending a group of faculty members over to India for 10 days. Now we have the opportunity in this virtual environment to provide them with a wider variety of faculty members for them to have the learning in shorter chunks. So they have time to apply the learning in between those sessions and reflect on it and think about what questions to ask the next time to ensure they're continuously improving in their management and leadership journey. Yeah, absolutely. So Maxim, going back to you in terms of, do you see the new normal or the new future as a better future or a better normal? You know, it's, um, it's hard to say, Jay. I believe there are going to be pros and cons to this, this new future relative to what we've experienced in the past. Now, let me start with 
the fact that we all realize that remote work is here to stay, right? Melanie mentioned it in the context of education, but beyond education, and we realize that people can do their work just fine working remotely. We've gotten over this mindset that somehow if you're not in the office, you're shirking or slacking, right? That's really important. That's the mindset change. Now, the question in my mind is, to what extent remote work will stay? Because that will shape the specific characteristics of the future. What I'm increasingly cognizant of is that it might not be entirely the focal company's decision. So I interviewed a senior consultant not too long ago, and he kept lamenting to me that he really wanted to go back to -to face-to-face interactions with clients. He felt he was more effective selling new business, building relationships. And I told him, well, what if your clients in the future are operating remotely? Right. Think about this for a second. If your customers, partners are operating largely remotely, a significant component of your work will necessarily be remote. Now, on the plus side, to me, I think the biggest advantage we will see in this new future is that companies will be able to source best talent regardless of their physical location. Right. We talked about the potential disadvantages of SMEs. Right. Krishna and Sydney, Cindy all talked about this. I think to some extent that can help neutralize that disadvantage. I anticipate, for example, that migration out of large cities, which have had already started, by the way, before COVID, will continue and will accelerate in part because of the availability of remote work. Even before 2020, for example, in New York City, there was a net outflow of 400 people per day due to migration. That trend will only accelerate. To be honest, For example, if I owned a lot of commercial or even residential real estate in a large metropolitan area, which I do not, I'd be really worried. Globally, what these trends do is that they append advantage, strategic advantage of some geographical areas, but also I believe create more egalitarian environment for companies and other regions. For example, if you can get access to the best venture capitalists and the best labor remotely, as a small, medium company, as a startup, do you really need to be in Silicon Valley? Do you really need to be in London, New York, Singapore, which by the way, many SMEs cannot afford, right? To access the best bankers. Startups from Dubai or Detroit can compete with those in San Francisco without having necessarily to relocate to San Francisco. To me, that's really important. Now, my cautionary tales is that I think rather soon, will get over the initial hype of remote work. And that initial hype, at least in my assessment, is often driven by cost reductions. I've done a lot of interviews with executives. I've been in the field. I talked to the leaders and I said, well, what excites you about remote work? Almost inevitably, conversations start with, look at how much my money I'm saving. I'm saving in real estate, on parking and so on. One senior marketing executive was raving to me that he's saving $50,000 a year on coffee, he used to provide to his employees in physical offices. And in my mind, this cost-driven thinking is incredibly myopic and not strategic. Unless you're competing to be the lowest cost provider, which none of these companies that I talked to are, this is not the way to look at the situation. And by the way, even on the cost reduction side, I think our thinking currently is incomplete. So one of the executives I interviewed, his name is Jake, Jake Goldman. He's the founder and CEO of TenUp which is one of the leading remote organizations in the world. He is in Business Week, Forbes, Inc., and so on. And he told me that the amount of money he spends on his annual culture summit, where he has to bring people together on high-end collaborative technology and hardware, 
on facilitating get-togethers among employees who live in the same geographical area, so at least they meet one another face-to-face -face occasionally, is significant, incredibly significant. But looking deeper, I think we'll realize that it's much harder to sustain motivation remotely in remote work. There's quite a bit of research showing that it's just harder to sustain engagement when no one's around. To me, it's, the cost is just the tip of the iceberg, right? So looking deeper at the foundation of what would this remote work will bring, it's much harder to sustain motivation and engagement when no one's around, when no one's watching. And I have to say this, that I have to share this, where um, in one of my interviews, one executive was extolling the virtues of remote work. And he said, my workers were much more productive last year to 2020, the COVID year. And, and I said, why is that? Why were they so productive? And he said, they were really scared for their jobs, right? And I couldn't help but smile because, you know, do we really expect this to be sustainable in the future? What I think we will also realize is that cultures and relationships are much more difficult to build in remote work. Melanie talked about the fact that our cohorts might not necessarily feel the same level of, you know, social proximity, having gone through the, you know, experience virtually. Well, it's the same in collaborative work environments. Plus, right now, we sometimes forget, I believe, what we're now working remotely with people with whom we already had built face-to-face -face relationships. Now, think for a second that you're now interviewing, selecting, onboarding, and integrating employees without ever meeting them face-to-face. -face. That's going to be an entirely different story, an entirely different experience. And I think we'll be uncovering some of these issues as we go along. Talking about my educational experiences, I understand that COVID just happened to be coupled with an incredibly polarized political environment. We had social justice issues worldwide, but I was really concerned about the mental health of my students. And what we know from organizational research is that we're terrible at detecting mental health issues face-to-face. -face. Absolutely horrendous. Well, it's going to be even harder to do so virtually. So again, I think as we get over this initial hype and early experiences, will uncover these deeper layers that will lead us to pause and change in major way how we in major ways how we approach organizations and leadership. What I get out of it is that trend of the migration that's happening from both coasts. Actually, it might end up being a good thing in terms of having a distributed economy, bringing more to the heartland, to the Midwest, to the South, then having that distribution to be more balanced across the country. And to your last point, we all have to break outside of our comfort zone. If we are to find the motivation and the right balance between remote work and between physical work, we have to really break out of the comfort zone that we have been in in generations. So this is going to be key for us to drive a balanced and stable future. Yeah, and I would just add to this. I think, Jay, you're absolutely right. And Melanie talked about this change in mindset. I think it's going to be absolutely crucial. And to some extent, it's on us. To some extent, it's on organizational cultures. That's why I'm so hyped about the culture of Amazon, because it enables people to change this mindset quickly. Because just like any crisis, I can view this crisis as a threat, as a disruption. right? I can hunker down and turtle up. And I can get in this defensive mode where I'm resistant to change. Or alternatively, I can look at this crisis and say, look, look how many opportunities we're having that are new. Look at the opportunities in terms of hiring the best people elsewhere in the world. Look at the opportunities for remote work or online education or developing my talent, right? And approaching it with this mindset, the growth mindset, the opportunity mindset will result in fundamentally different outcomes as opposed to just perceiving it as a threat and as a constraint on what you can do. Absolutely. So uh, I think cheers then to day one 
and to staying in day one. And I would like to definitely thank you. And um, I do appreciate your uh, deep insights and vision. And I'm hoping that over the next 12 months, we'll be able to have these one-on-ones that hopefully our audience is going to benefit quite a bit from. Uh, again, uh, I appreciate the time you spent with me and uh, we hope to see you soon. Please stay tuned to the next episode of our podcast series, where we talk to Professor Cindy Chipani and our Chief Education Officer, Melanie weaver Barnett, along with Gida Majdi and Hiba Sayed, winners of our Women's Empowerment Scholarship about female leaders in the business world. 